0: Hello and welcome to the Metairn Podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. I'm delighted to be back with the new season and to finally be back in studio after two years of home recordings. We've been away making some changes and are excited to bring a new series of episodes to you over the coming months. This episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Heidi Syvestre. Dr. Syvestre is a glaciologist and climate scientist. She's the winner of the Shackleton Medal for the Protection of Polar Regions. She is the host of several climate and science documentaries on French television and has just finished filming an expedition in Greenland with National Geographic. I spoke with Heidi while she was in Svalbard, deep in the Norwegian Arctic, and we talked about fending off polar bears, climbing huge cliffs with the world's best climbers and surviving Arctic storms by digging into the snow. So Heidi, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today.
1: I mean, thank you so much for having me. Really tough to hear and see you again.
0: I think the last time we spoke in person was actually in, in Svalbard, which is where you are now.
1: I mean, it must have been quite a few years ago, but indeed, uh, we got the chance to meet on Svalbard. And and I'm here just before the dark season begins and the light is incredible. I wish I could I could describe it in a, in a really eloquent way, but it's pretty magnificent tonight and I can see the stars shining, and the white snow glimmering under the light. So it's beautiful.
0: Beautiful. And for those who who have never been to Svalbard, like like most people, can you describe where you are now? You're in, you're in a in a research institute there at the moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Svalbard is uh, is a very very special place, probably for the both of us. Uh, it is an archipelago found between the north of Norway and the North Pole. And uh, on Svalbard, there is um, a settlement there, a community called Longyearbyen, uh, which is actually the northernmost uh, settlement in the world. So I'm speaking to you from 78 degrees north. And indeed, there is a university in Svalbard, UNIS. Uh, there is also the Norwegian Polar Institute that has an office here. And I try very hard to spend as much of my year in Svalbard. Um, because I just love it so much. It is such a special place.
0: So you did a lot of your PhD work in Svalbard. And, and as you've just said there, you also have tried to come back as much as you can. What What is it about it that keeps that brought you there in the first place and keeps bringing you back?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first time I got the chance to travel to Svalbard was actually in 2008. So that was a long time ago. I felt pretty old talking about this. But at the time, I was an undergrad, Uh, studying geography, and I got the chance to do my Erasmus, uh, you know, that European um, exchange program. And um, um, one of my best friends told me about this crazy university deep, deep in the high Arctic. And I thought, hey, that sounds like a plan to me. (laughs) And uh, I got the chance to spend six months up here on Svalbard from end of July to the middle of December. And it was I mean, it totally transformed me. I had the time of my life. And and once you are bitten by the Arctic bug or the Svalbard bug, I mean, you just keep on coming back. And I was lucky to be able to do my, my entire PhD up here from 2011 to 2015. And now I have the chance to still do a little bit of teaching at the university and I just try to grab any excuse I have to come back here and spend more time up here in Svalbard.
0: Oh, it's an amazing place. I, I only managed to spend a, a few months there. But uh, as you've said, it, it made such an impression on me. And, and the light, I think, is the most one of the most amazing things about it. I was there in spring just as the light was starting to come back and you, you feel like you're on another planet. I don't know anywhere else that it, it has that light or that atmosphere. <laughs>
1: I mean, it is crazy. People have to imagine that this is another planet. I mean, I totally agree with you. Uh, When you land here, uh, because you mostly come by plane, uh, it really feels like you've been teleported somewhere else. And what I love about this place is that the land is covered at 60% by ice. And I mean, for glaciologists, uh, it is truly heaven because... You are never really far from glaciers. There are glaciers two kilometers away from the university. So it is the best lab to study the Arctic, but also probably the best lab to study climate change. Because today it is the place that is warming the fastest on Earth. So Svalbard. I mean, there are some islands in Svalbard that are warming six to seven times faster than the global average. So it makes it a super interesting place for us scientists.
0: And you're very well versed in that change because even just last year, you were on this epic expedition, the Climate Sentinels, a five week expedition through Svalbard. Can you tell us a little bit about what your hopes were for that expedition and how it came about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love talking about Climate Sentinels because it's a project that took us so many years uh, to, to, to make it happen. Um, Climate Sentinels was first and foremost a, a research expedition. Um, so with a team of female scientists, we wanted to show that, that fieldwork can be done differently, even in the most extreme of environments. So we plan to spend a little bit more than a month on Svalbard, collecting data to better understand how air pollution, uh, how aerosols floating in the atmosphere Um, catalyze the melting of the Arctic. So we were studying, in particular, black carbon, which are these very dark particles that are emitted every time we burn fossil fuels. And because they're so dark, you know, every time they land on snow and ice on these very white surfaces, they make them darker. And instead of reflecting solar radiation when they're nice and bright and white, uh, when they become darker, they just absorb more of the heat from the sun and, and melt so much faster and so in order to to do this expedition we we didn't want to follow the, the typical codes of a polar research expedition so we wanted to uh, use different transportation techniques and in Svalbard I mean if you want to to conduct a clean expedition you don't have many many options especially uh, in the spring, which is the, the the time period we were aiming for, the month of April. Uh, so we decided to to spend a little bit more than a month on skis, uh, pulling all our equipment behind us. And on paper, it was supposed to be, you know, the, the best month of the year to do this type of expeditions. April, as you know, is typically like super nice weather, really stable Uh, you wake up in the morning and you know the weather is going to be amazing, you know it's going to be sunny and cold. And we had the complete opposite. Um, We had the worst weather I've ever experienced in my life. And it made this expedition all the more difficult, all the more challenging, because we were just so vulnerable in the field. I mean, we were just on skis, camping every night and it was pretty horrible. <laughs> it was really horrible, to be honest.
0: So you had made this quite a brave decision to have essentially a carbon neutral science expedition, which as you say is is quite unusual. I mean, even from research that I've been involved in myself, if you're trying to go somewhere remote, you're usually relying on uh, maybe helicopters or something like that, which obviously uh, use a lot of fuel and produce a lot of carbon. So it's a very uh, a brave choice to make because you're putting yourself at the elements was there a particular day that stands out as being, you know, filled with hardship or was was, was more demanding than you thought it was going to be?
1: I mean, no joke, no. Uh, every day was uh, pretty horrible. <laughs> I think the days we actually enjoyed on the expedition can probably be counted on the fingers of one hand um, because it was just so very hard. But, I mean, I think the probably the worst day we had on the trip was actually really early in the expedition. It was probably the fourth or fifth day. So it takes a while to get into the rhythm of this sort of expedition. So you would, you know, you would think that the first week you have to take it easy just to get your body acclimatized to the conditions, but we didn't have any time uh, to adjust to the, to the horrible conditions we had. And on that fourth or fifth day, we started to get really scary weather forecasts from our friends back in town, back in Longyearbyen. And and I'm so grateful for their help because we, you know, our friends are scientists. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It must be the same for you. But some of our very best friends are super talented meteorologists, climatologists. and, And they were sending us weather forecasts twice a day to make sure we would make the right decisions at the right time. And, We started to receive these crazy, crazy weather forecasts with insane winds. And in Zvalbard, you know, it's very often very windy up here. So we're used to having winds up to, I don't know, 13, 14 meters per second. But we started to receive forecasts of 36 meters per second, which is starting to be extremely distressing. We had to be very quick in, in making the right decisions. And luckily, I had the very best teammates around me who knew about like, the back of their hands. And, and, and I would totally trust them with my life. And we agreed that we had to rush to find shelter and find a mountain that would be in the right place orientation in the right direction to provide some shelter to us. But we quickly realized that we couldn't camp anymore. We couldn't put up the tents because the tents would fly away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so as as kind of a joke, I told my friend Celia and I said, you know, we just have to dig a hole. We have to, to, to bury ourselves in the snowpack. And she said, this is exactly what we're going to be doing. <laughs> and so we only had a few hours to... To prepare, um, as soon as we found the right mountain, we started digging and we dug for hours and hours and hours to make a hole big enough for the entire team. We actually made two tunnels uh, parallel to one another. And um, and we finished these tunnels just in time for, for the storm to arrive. And it was insane. I've never seen anything like this. It was absolutely, absolutely um, super scary and I was even worried that um, our, the entrance of our tunnels would be buried by avalanches because not only there was a lot of wind but the wind was carrying a lot of snow but in the end you know even though it was uh, all very stressful we slept like babies in these uh, little tunnels uh, it was pretty amazing we couldn't hear any sounds when we were deep in the snow and, and you know we survived and we heard that after this really bad storm, several expeditions have had to be evacuated uh, because, I mean, poor them, they lost their tents and, and they were in really a distressing situation. So I think this was by far the worst day of the trip, but we typically had storms every other day. And this is highly unusual for, for the month of April in Svalbard. And, and it took us, I think, quite, quite a while to realize that what we were experiencing was probably the expression of climate change that, you know, scientists have been saying for decades that the weather in the Arctic is going to become more extreme and more unpredictable and warmer, wetter, wind- windier. And this is exactly what we experienced on the Climate, ex- climate Sentinels
0: Expedition. Wow. How, how long were you in that tunnel for?
1: <laughs> we were in the tunnel for two nights. And we were starting to run out of food because we had food depots along the way. We didn't carry a a month's worth of food. It was too heavy. So we decided on the third day to leave this very, very nice shelter because we were quite high up in altitude. And so because we were so high up, we were experiencing really, really high winds. And so we decided to leave the the comfort, if I dare say, the comfort of those uh, tunnels Um, to start losing altitude very quickly. And the day we left the tunnels was, was pretty horrible. And I thought, my gosh, if we have the smallest problem on the way down the mountains, I mean, we're dead. The conditions were really, really bad. And just, you know, losing a ski, hurting your knee, twisting your ankle could be so bad because you cannot stop when the conditions are that bad. You have to keep going until you find another shelter. So... Yeah, two two nights, and then we we had to keep moving.
0: Did you consider cancelling the expedition at any point?
1: Oh, yeah, every day. (laughs) Every day. Uh, Every day we discussed uh, stopping the expedition. I think from day one or day two, we were already discussing uh, the fact that we will never be able to make it to the end. And in the end, we managed to go really, really far, almost all the way to the end. Um, But we were really... Um, honest about the fact that this was really abnormal conditions, and we were not ready for it because on top of on top of surviving, we still had to collect all these data. Uh, we were collecting snow samples. We were doing snow density pits uh, to measure you know, how much snow there was around us and, and the the specificities of these of these uh, snowpack. So we decided to take it one day at a time, and then very quickly, one hour at a time. <laughs> and, and this way, you know, you don't put too much pressure on your shoulders and you only focus on, you know, the next hour and the next day. And I think this is the only way we manage to keep going.
0: Did you have any encounters with some of Svalbard's famous wildlife <laughs> while you were there?
1: Yeah, I mean, Svalbard is, is famous for its inhabitants. And I'm not and I'm not mentioning, you know, the scientists or, or the Norwegians or uh, Russians or Ukrainians living here. I'm talking, of course, about the, the wildlife. And I'm sure you have this in mind as well, that there are loads of polar bears on the archipelago. And this was a huge concern for us because, you know, people might think, ah oh, it must be so great to, to see polar bears and it's often great it's often a miracle and a, and a magical moment but when you're on skis uh camping uh on their you know hunting ground it's it's never a very comfortable situation so we took a lot of precautions to make sure that we would never be in a situation where we would disturb the bears where we we would annoy the bears because we are in their territory i think this is very important to to understand is that we are the ones perturbing them. And we, we really wanted to, to respect them. So we had, for example, two dogs with us, at least for the, for the first part of the expedition. Uh, we quickly noticed that these dogs really were quite terrible at noticing bears around us. Uh, I think on the third day, we saw a mom and two cubs uh, running away from us, which was a very nice situation. Uh, but the dogs didn't react uh, in any way. So we thought, oh, maybe maybe these dogs are not so great. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we also had um, what we call the snubblublus, which is uh, the trip wire. So a cable that you would tie up around camp. And if something, someone uh, pushes that cable it would trigger um, some kind of mini grenades or mini explosives that would either scare the bear away or wake us up. And we also, um, at the beginning of the expedition, started doing bear watches during the night. So every two hours, one of us, you know, would be on watch and make sure that we would see what's around us. But after a week of not sleeping, we totally gave up on bear watching, which I'm quite ashamed to say, but this is the reality of being on an expedition. And, and then we made some mistakes. Uh, the day, actually, the day we handed the dogs back, uh, it was at a food depot in, in Pyramiden, which is a, a small Russian settlement. So the first night, we, we didn't have the dogs. We had a polar bear coming very close to our camp. But we made a big mistake that night. We camped right in the hunting ground of the bears, which was on the sea ice. So on the ice, you know, frozen over the ocean. And luckily we had a very nice bear. The bear just wanted to say hello and and didn't bother us at all. But we were really scared and we decided to move the camp and stay in a cabin that luckily was very close to us. So all in all, everything went well, but it was our fault that night for sure.
0: You mentioned the scientific research that you're doing on this study and, and for example, looking at the brightness of the snow. And we, we talked about this in a previous episode called Why Ice Matters, the ice albedo and the ice albedo feedback and how important that is for uh, the climate as a whole. Have you started analysing that data yet? Have you found any interesting results from, from the data that you gathered?
1: Yes, so I'm, I'm really happy that, um, that the data has been processed. So we collected... Uh, I think, 92 snow samples, if I'm correct, and the samples were then sent to Western Washington University, where uh, one of our teammates, Dr. Alia Khan, uh, from that university, is in charge of the whole data processing and and write-up, because she's a true world-class expert on black carbon. And luckily, after a few delays um, due to, to COVID, it was very hard to find time to process the samples. She was able to process them this summer. So it's, it's super fresh. And so she hasn't started to interpret the results and to write the results up. Um, but at least the data is there. And what she's going to start doing, which I think is great, is to put the data set online, uh, for you know all the scientists interested in the data, if they want to also collaborate on the paper together, and what the results should be telling us is basically where the pollution is coming from. So where where all these aerosols, all this dust that is landing on the snow and ice in Svalbard is coming from? You know, is it coming from Europe? Is it coming from Asia? Is it coming from North America? Um, what kind of fossil fuel has burnt in the first place? So is it you know, coal, uh, it could be wildfires, is it the biomass, for example, is it uh, diesel? Um, so that would be very interesting for us to be able to identify hot spots of pollution that are impacting so terribly uh, the Arctic and Svalbard in particular.
0: That information would be so useful, particularly for follow-on studies after, say, for example, this summer with all the forest fires we had in Europe. So that would be very valuable work. And I'm sure every data point is so valuable to you considering the the blood sweat and tears that went into getting it
1: oh yeah the suffering absolutely you yeah, know it's <laughs> it's so so meaningful to us and uh, and yeah i can't wait to start getting some results and to start communicating on these results so perhaps i could get the chance to to come back on the podcast and update you in a few months. Let's see. That would be
0: fantastic. That would be great. Well, you haven't been uh, taking it easy since that expedition, so you've recently returned from Greenland, where you've been on a six-week expedition. And that was a mixture of both climate science and also climbing. So you were there with Alex Honnold and Hazel Findlay, they're two of the best climbers in the world. Um, some of our listeners might be aware of Alex, who was the focus of Free Solo, which was a, an Oscar winning uh, documentary. I suppose to, to start off, why combine a climate expedition with climbing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I still can't believe that I got the chance to, to be a part of this expedition. <laughs> now that I, I think about this and I'm like, was this real? Was I really a part of this? This was a real dream come true. And as you said, you know, it, it was kind of a hybrid type of expedition on, during which we, we combined kind of adventure, climbing, and science. Um, and I should preface this by saying that we were also um, filming a series of documentaries for National Geographic and Disney+, Plus, um, and these do- documentaries will come out on Earth Day next year. So what we try to do is to explore this part of Greenland, the, the eastern part of Greenland, that is probably one of the least explored parts of the Arctic, but also one of the least studied. And at first, this expedition was supposed to be all about, you know, adventure, climbing. And, and it's actually Alex Hornold who suggested that perhaps, you know, there should be science done along the way, because it is so rare, even for scientists, to get the chance to go to that specific area of Sund, So it's the longest fjord system in the world in East Greenland. And we spent six weeks there from uh, the very beginning of July to almost the end of August this year. And it made it a very interesting expedition, so very exciting because for about a year we prepared the research program of the expedition. And I'm so grateful for the researchers I was working with from Plimsoll Productions that worked so very hard to connect to, I think they must have called like all the glaciologists in the world interested in this part of Greenland, all the climate scientists, all the oceanographers. And together we built a program of 16 different projects, 16 different experiments, 16 different research protocols with institutions from around the world. And I mean, just to name a few, but the one I was super excited about was NASA. So we, we launched um, an instrument for NASA in the, in the fjord of Scoresby Sund. We collected rock samples from the University of Liverpool uh, for Buffalo University. We collected a ton of ground penetrating radar. So radar data helps us to measure how much ice there is in these glaciers and ice caps for a DTU space and DMI. Um, So I'm not going to name all of the experiments that we conducted, but it was a lot. And what was quite amazing to me is that the team I was a part of was so excited about the science. I mean, I can't tell you how Alex, Hazel, or Aldo, Adam, and Mikey were always working so hard to help me. There was only so much I could do on my own. And... Eventually, there were some protocols that required a lot of climbing, and I'm not a climber. Especially after meeting uh, Alex and Hazel, I will never pretend that I'm a climber. But they helped me so much to climb up these big walls, some of the you know craziest things I've ever done. To go down moulin's, which are these vertical shafts in glaciers. So it was amazing to have this super varied set of skills to collect data on an expedition that was, you know, that, that was actually at the beginning giving the priority to, to climbing and, and adventure. And I think it has really opened our eyes to the fact that we can do more of this. You know, we can do more of these expeditions to the far corners of the world where we have these amazing athletes, amazing climbers, adventurers, who are so excited to bring something back to society, And I think that, of course, you know, I didn't collect as much data as we would on a proper research expedition where we would be 30 scientists collecting, you know, gigabytes and terabytes of data. Everything we collected was a bonus. But I think we should really be, us, the scientists, should be more open-minded to these sort of projects. Because... I'm quite amazed by how much data we have been able to collect and, and it is going to make a positive contribution to society. So this is really great.
0: Uh, it sounds like a really, really positive use of an expedition that was going to happen anyway. How, how high were some of these routes on the, on the walls that you were climbing?
1: Um, so the, the route I took part in was about, if I remember correctly, 400 to 450 meters high.
0: Wow. Which is yeah. high
1: enough, let I me mean, tell you. <laughs> I'm not sure. In, in
0: Ireland, that's a decent sized mountain, so yeah. Oh yeah, cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that's nice. And then, and then um, the, the climbers of the team went on to climb uh, Imikotilak, uh, which is probably one of the or the largest uh, cliff in the Arctic or the tallest, which was, if I remember correctly, probably 1,300, 1,400 meters high. And it was so tall that you really had to you know, bend so hard to see it from the bottom to the top. It was really insanely scary. And I can't believe they have managed to do this because, I mean, you have to remember that this is the Arctic, right? And in the Arctic, all the mountains are affected by freeze-thaw. So there is a lot of instability in the rock. It's not like really good, you know, gneiss or granite, something you would find further south. And these mountains are really unstable. And they were, you know, rock falls all the time. There was even like stalactites trying to stab you along the way. So, I mean, they're, they're the very best in the world. So, of course, they have managed to do it. But still, I'm, I'm so, so very impressed.
0: So, going from Svalbard and from the Arctic, you also have an interest in the ice that we can find in the warmer parts of the world. So, you had (laughs) another project, yeah, which is fantastic, called The Last Tropical Glaciers. So, I mean, do we need to be concerned about glaciers in the tropics? Surely, these hot places, I mean, is ice really important in the tropics?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? I think it's such an amazing thing that there is still some ice along the equator, and the only reason why there is still ice there is because there are very tall mountains. So all the, the glaciers that we find along the equator are inherited from the last ice age. And now they're just getting smaller and smaller and smaller every year. Um, and so there are still about 3,000 tropical glaciers. So that's, that's indeed uh, how we call them. And we find them in, in Central America. We find them in East Africa. And the craziest ones are in uh, Indonesia, in Papua, actually, uh, which are the last glaciers of Oceania, which is incredibly poetic. And this is a, a real question, you know, do they matter? Because they, they tend to be very small and, and they are disappearing right now. They, they are retreating very, very quickly. But for some of these countries, they still matter, especially during the dry seasons, Um, So especially if you look at um, uh, the northern part of South America and, and Central America, the seasons are either very wet or very dry. And in these communities, in these settlements that live around the mountains where there are glaciers, the only source of water during the dry season is the water coming from the melting ice. So there, it matters enormously. Um, and we are seeing that these glaciers make such an important contribution to the water cycle, to the biodiversity of these um, high altitude environments. And also in, in some of these countries, there is a lot of hydroelectricity that is produced and that still needs the water from these glaciers.
0: So these glaciers are essentially water reservoirs for the dry season.
1: Yeah, that's a a very nice way to put it. Yeah, they are truly the water reservoirs, the water towers during the dry seasons. And and the impact from the glaciers go beyond just the mountains where we find them. You know, their impact can be found all along the rivers that stem from these glaciers. So sometimes, you know, if you look at the glaciers in, in Africa, the highest and most permanent source of the Nile River is actually in Uganda. And it's actually a handful of glaciers that make a tiny, tiny contribution to the Nile River because they're so small today. But it's amazing to me to see that their impact, you know, the, the little drops of water that they, they lose in the Nile River can have an impact over thousands of kilometers.
0: And are these the glaciers in the mountains of the moon? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So oh, this is such a poetic uh, name. But the mountains of the moon are these mountains in that are basically between Uganda and the DRC. Um, and oh, this is one place that I've been trying to, to access for the past few years. It's been very difficult. There. There's been quite a bit of political unrest in the region recently. Um, but the glaciers there are just magical. I mean, imagine that... To access these glaciers, you have to walk through jungles, through tropical jungles, and eventually you reach an altitude that is high enough to still have ice and snow. And why these glaciers matter so much to me is because today they are disappearing. So we know that for the largest parts of these glaciers, an increase in temperature beyond one degree Celsius is too much. For them, you know, this is... Their tipping point, this is their threshold of irreversibility. And beyond the one degrees, it's too late. These glaciers will just disappear. And we are already beyond one degree. We are at 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius. So sadly for these glaciers, you know, they, they are doomed and they will just get smaller and smaller every year. And I really wanted to create a project that would... Make sure we never forget about these glaciers, that uh, we would create this uh, these digital archives of these tropical glaciers. Because imagine in, in 10 years, in 20 years, when these glaciers are gone, who will remember? Who will remember that they were there? Who will remember how majestic they were, how important they were for the populations of these countries and beyond? And to me there is a very important role to to give to these glaciers. We know that these glaciers are doomed to disappear, but it's not too late for the glaciers of the Himalayas, for example, for the glaciers of the Alps, for the glaciers of the rest of the Andes, or the glaciers in Alaska, where glaciers matter to billions of people. And from learning from these tropical glaciers, there's a lot we can improve in our understanding of the glaciers in other places and, and a lot of solutions we can implement to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to the other glaciers in the world.
0: So it's not just archiving what was there and what has what been lost, but you're essentially showing a test case for what other communities and what other countries and regions could be facing uh, as climate change advances.
1: Yeah, it's exactly that. And, I've been absolutely amazed at the work that is being done in the country of Colombia, which is where we have been doing most of our fieldwork. And a few years ago, I got contacted on Instagram, you know, (laughs) out of all places, uh, by an amazing lady called uh, Marcela Fernandez. And Marcela is, or was at the time, in charge of a citizen science project called Cumbres Blancas Colombia, And Cumbres Blancas is made of um, young artists, activists. Uh, Most of them are not scientists, but they care so deeply about the amazing nature of Colombia. I mean, Colombia has the highest number of national parks in the world. There is everything in Colombia, including glaciers. And they've been working hand in hand with EDM, which is uh, the um, Institute of uh, Hydrology, uh, that studies the glaciers with the glaciologist uh, Jorge Luis Ceballos. And Cumbres Blancas have been able to move mountains in their country to make sure that we better understand the glaciers in Colombia, to make sure that we help to protect them as much as possible, even though they're retreating very quickly, um, to make sure that the population of Colombia would understand that there are glaciers in their country and that these glaciers deserve to be better understood and better protected. And I think, you know, for us scientists coming from Europe, there is so much we can can learn from working with projects like Cumbles, Blancas, Colombia, you know, in terms of outreach for the education of the populations in countries that we may not think are so far ahead of us in understanding their environment in protecting these ecosystems but actually they are miles and miles ahead of what we do
0: you mentioned something there that's very important in terms of outreach and uh, i was reading a post from from Alex honold and he he described you as a science dynamo always educating the team and as someone who I've, I've met you, so I know that you have this this passion and this talent for science communication and, and you've made it such a core part of what it is that you do. And that's a really, really great thing. What is it that that drives you to communicate science? Why is that so important to you?
1: You know, we really need to think long and hard about why we decided to become scientists and what our role is in society. I think today... You know, we know that the house is on fire um, and we could stick to measuring the height of the flames, how much heat is being radiated by the house that is on fire, or we could decide to go beyond that while continuing to do the science and make sure that either the house doesn't catch fire or make sure we put down the fire. And... It is very important to understand our roles and responsibilities. And I know that my my biggest passion today, but my, yeah, my biggest task is to make sure that the science is better understood, um, that people regain trust in science, because we know this is a very integral part of being pulled into action. If you don't understand why you have to change car, if you do not understand why... You have to turn down the heating in your house. If you don't understand why there are all these new rules and regulations, why would you follow them? I mean, fair enough. I totally see that in my country in France, that if you do not understand the situation we're in, you will not be compelled to act against climate change. And there is so much great things happening in the science world. I mean, what we get to study is truly magical, just Showing people what Greenland or Svalbard looks like is fantastic. To make sure that we build these bridges between people in Ireland, people in France, and these really remote environments, and show them why the melting of the Arctic can impact them, impact their daily lives, is key to our work. And I can see that there is a brand new generation of scientists that gets it who understand that we need to go beyond research publications, we need to go beyond journal articles, beyond reports, that our communication needs to be totally transparent and really proactive. And, you know, I might be naive, but I'm I'm pretty confident that if people are able to understand the scale of the problem and the importance of climate action, then they will be pulled to act. Then they will want to have this positive impact on the planet. And I see it every day. I try to do as much outreach as I can. Uh, And I see it, you know, when people, when it clicks in their heads, when they start to understand, oh, this is what's happening. This is how it is impacting my daily life. The first question they ask me is, but what can I do about this? And this is where... We need to be, as a a research community, we need to be a lot more proactive than we are today.
0: Traditionally, there's a difficulty sometimes with scientists communicating to the public because they're in this role where they may wish to create awareness, but they also are determined to be factually correct which is which is what they need to be and, and often sometimes it'll be the scientists who are pulling media back from being sensationalist or being uh, you know exaggerating but when you have a case of a situation which is unprecedented and we've seen climate change increasing and it's it's potentially worse than we thought it was going to be and the role of the scientists to still communicate the facts and not ex- not exaggerate that, but also to promote how important this is. It, it can be difficult because it's not the, the language mm. that scientists are necessarily used to using.
1: I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, and we're not trained to do this. I mean, more and more, but back in my days, I remember we were absolutely not trained to do <laughs> <Don't say that. laughs> to do any media, media things, uh, media engagements, um, and also, um, of course, we have been taught to keep a very neutral stance um, in the way we communicate, uh, which is so very important. It's so crucial to make sure that our facts are absolutely boneproof, to make sure that we communicate with the highest level of ethics, you know, that we make sure we really stick to the facts. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we understand what is our end goal, And more often than not, my end goal is not to make sure that people understand the complexity of the climate models me and my teams are using. My end goal when I speak to governments or to the general public would be to make sure that they understand the urgency of the situation. And these are two different things. If I was communicating to the research community, I would absolutely focus on how intricate, how complex um, scientific phenomena are, you know. Uh, But if I'm speaking to um, stakeholders, people who have a way to change things, and, you know, if you're old enough to vote, uh, you have the power to change things today, uh, I would make sure that I think long and hard about why am I going to speak to these people? And what do I want to achieve by speaking to these people? And, and today, we are truly losing all our glaciers. I mean, we should, we should face reality. We are losing our cryosphere. Our ice sheets are starting to show massive signs of weaknesses. Sea level is rising, impacting all of us on Earth. Uh, our water resources are being compromised. And I want to make sure that people understand that if we do not act right now, not in 10 years, not in 30 years, but really right now, starting today, we have a shot at having a better future. But if we don't, the future will be very, very difficult. And, I, you know, I often think about future generations, you know, and, and how difficult it might be if we do not act fast enough. So I totally agree. It is a difficult position for us scientists who tend to be quite shy and tend to only communicate to other scientists, but it's it's time we go beyond journal publications.
0: You mentioned when you think of future generations and there was a children's book published last week on glaciers and climate. And you are the main hero of the story, which is fantastic. So it, so in English, the title is, is Discover Glaciers with Heidi Sylvester. And it's such a great example to give to kids. Is it surreal to see yourself in cartoon form?
1: <laughs> it is so unreal, so weird. Um, but I've had so much fun yeah, working on this book uh, with the editors from... Plume de Carotte, which is the name of the editing house. Um, you know, I think, again, we have to use all the tools available to really be able to connect with, you know, all the um, categories of the population. And I try to do as much outreach as possible with the youth uh, and I volunteer on, on different projects. But this was a real passion project. And I thought, oh, you know, what a great idea. They came up to me and asked me if I would be interested in working on this project. And I thought, you know, I would love, it's a real dream come true for me to put together a book talking about glaciers and how amazing they are, how important they are for kids that are aged eight years old to to, you know, older than that. And I would really encourage other scientists to do the same. We need to have this, you know, in every country for every type of science, because the things we work on are so very exciting. And, you know, us, the scientists, we're so passionate about the research that we do, uh, that we're often the best ambassadors of these fields. And when you're passionate about something and you try to make it passionate for other people, people usually found it fascinating. So I think, you know, it's it's one of the great tools to communicate on the importance of research and also to, to explain to them the situation we're in and to make sure that, you know, that they have faith in the future. It's definitely not a book um, to, to tell them that they have to fix the problems that we have created um you know the youth shouldn't have to fix the problems that uh, the older generations have triggered um but i think it's so nice to help them to to have trust in the science and and see how cool it is to study glaciers for example
0: <laughs> considering the youth and, and and the future i feel it's important that we also carry some sense of optimism when we talk about climate and when we when we communicate climate and climate action When you look to the future, do you have a sense of optimism?
1: You know, I think that's such an important point uh, that you're raising here. Because, you know, when we talk about climate change, the scientists, we, we tend to focus on all the things that are going wrong. But again, we shouldn't forget why we're trying to communicate on these issues. It's really to help people understand these situations, but also to propel them into action. But if you want to motivate someone to act against the climate crisis, this person should have some hope. The, the, these people should understand that the future can still be brighter. Because otherwise, why would you fight? You know, why would you make some sacrifices? Why would you change your car? What would you uh, completely change the way you live? And I think it is so crucial that we always focus on, on what we can do and the fact that we have all the cards in our hands to fight the climate crisis today. So I am very optimistic because I can see, even just in my country or France, um, that the narrative has totally changed over the past few months in the way we address climate action. Our government should be used to be so terrified of talking about you know reducing your electricity consumption, your energy consumption, uh, wasting less, uh, buying local products, but now because of of course because of the the war in Ukraine, they're all about <laughs> sufficiency. Um, so trying to to reduce uh, the footprint you have on the environment, and that gives me a lot of hope to see that words that the scientific community have had been using for for years and years and years, is now in the mouth of our highest-ranking politicians. Uh, To see that, you know, when I have family dinners, that people talk about those things now and in a very knowledgeable way. Um, So I see that, you know, people are, are becoming more aware of the situation and the more aware they are, the more solutions they want to focus on. And this is exactly what we should be doing we should be talking about the climate crisis. And most importantly, we should all be motivated, excited to work on climate action. Climate action should be irresistible. This is kind of what we should aim for, make it irresistible.
0: I think that's a very a very positive note to end on. So I'm going to say thank you, Hari, so much for coming on and talking to us. I continue to be impressed by both your scientific work and your outreach work. And I'm excited to see what you're going to do next. And we really appreciate you giving us your time today. That's all for this episode. My thanks again to Dr. Sylvester for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you did too. Thanks also to the team here at the podcast studios. It's great to be back recording with you. If you've any thoughts or questions on today's episode, be sure to get in touch on MetAaron's social media channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. Thanks for tuning in. Looking forward to speaking with you next time.